This is Invest Talk. Independent thinking, shared success. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Wednesday, October 19th, 2022 edition, and we are well into the fourth quarter, and the volatility continues, and I'm here to help you make sense of it all, understand where we are in the economic cycle as well as the investment cycle, help you make good money decisions each and every day. And my phone lines are always open, ready for you to answer your finance and investment questions. 888-99-CHART is the number, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You can call and leave your message or you can call and talk to me live from 4 to 5 Pacific time each and every weekday. Now I have a packed podcast for you today and my main focus point concerns the story behind this headline, looking at the history of mutual fund innovations. And mutual funds are still a very large part of our investment world. And I want to go over some of the positive things that have come out from that industry as well as things to watch out for and that over time have shown to be pretty big negatives as well. So we're going to look at uh, both sides of the the ledger there. Time permitting, I also want to touch on some other things as well. One is some data from Charles Schwab as well as Morgan Stanley in regards to trading uh, on the retail level. How are retail investors feeling about the current market environment? And usually investors vote with their feet. They trade less, they trade more. Uh, We're going to look at those numbers. Also, why we are in for a CapEx boom for the next decade or two, probably two. Uh, and I want to go over kind of the economic environment that we're likely to face over the next 10 to 20 years, in which is a, a big difference than what you've seen over the past 30, 40 years, pretty much since the early 80s and the last inflationary scare. So we're going to look at that. And then lastly, some changes to the IRS tax brackets. The standard deduction is changing by 7% for 2023 and some other changes to expect next year as well. So we're going to go over that. But ultimately, I want to know what is on your mind. Uh, we have some voice bank caller questions set up for you, one on Netflix as well as real estate loans. So I've got this all planned for you on today's episode of Invest Talk. Now, let's take a look at the market today. It was uh, a modest down day, so down 24 points on the S&P. And we're have the second consecutive daily close above the 20-day moving average, which we haven't seen that. We haven't seen two consecutive days uh, above the 20-day since mid August, really since the, the the latest leg of the bear market, right? We had the bear market rally from the June lows when everyone was very negative and we had a bear market rally at the 200-day moving average and on the S&P and turned over rather quickly. 
And this is the the first time we've seen uh, action north of that 20 day. So very interesting uh, there. We saw a strong dollar, although it did not break to new highs. But what did break to new highs was the 10 year, the 10 year treasury rate at 4.127%, the close today. And that was the highest level we've seen in years. So obviously that's pressure on the, the market, pressure on anything interest rate sensitive, and obviously pressure from the Fed uh, or for the Fed to potentially step in there because uh, they don't want that to get disorderly, which they've talked about a bit. So, uh, but overall for the equity market, at least, that was a, a positive today, but we're, we're gonna need to see the, the, the 10 year kind of back off here and not get much above that 1.25 level, which we're you know, knocking the door on pretty soon. Now let's get to our first listener question now. Hi guys, love the show. Was wondering if you could take a look at AT&T for me. It just seems like it's really cheap and I am thinking about putting more than you guys recommend in my portfolio into it because of how cheap it is. And I was just curious if there's something that I'm not seeing and why this might not be a good idea. Thank you very much. Love the show again. Thanks. Bye. Well, the issue with AT&T is that their business is decelerating. Earnings are supposed to fall 3% this year and 2% uh, next year. Now, that's not dramatic, but what you're seeing here, and, and it, it looks cheap, and it is definitely on the cheap side. I will say that. Um, but what you're seeing is a repricing of uh, companies that pay a dividend and have a good amount of debt. And AT&T certainly does have a good amount of debt. Now, they also have a good amount of cash flow. Their interest coverage is five times. So I think they're fine when it comes to uh, that standpoint. But they, they probably should be paying down their their dividend, or excuse me, paying down their debt. Uh, and it, their dividend growth is probably going to be very meager. Um, now, part of the spinoff of Time Warner and all that, that's going to bring down some debt. So that's a positive. But still, even when they do that, uh, they, they still have a good amount of debt on their balance sheet. So... Uh, I don't think it's a screaming buy because of that debt level. Now, is it cheap? Yes. Is it something you should throw all your capital at because it's so blindingly cheap? No, I, I would not say that. Um, so it's uh, it's it's just a normal allocation. If you like it and, and you want that income, uh, then I think it's fine. Um, but it's not something I would get all worked up for and, and over allocating to. Now, this is Invest Talk. Steve and I are all are with you uh, all, all the way and ready to answer questions from our loyal Invest Talk listeners. And we're very happy to hear the caller question that came in via our voice bank recordings. But it's worth mentioning that we love to hear listeners on our live stream as well, four to five Pacific time. And our number never changes and it never closes. It's 888 chart. Why do listener questions make InvestTalk better? Which of these would you recommend? Because each caller presents fresh questions in their voice. I was curious if you still think aluminum has a ways to go from here. When do I know the right time to take profits? Should I be looking for an exit? Should I be holding here? And listeners instinctively realize that InvestTalk uniquely offers a welcome dose of investing satisfaction. I think you have a terrific show, and I've learned a whole lot. Hey guys, love your show. Uh, I've been listening for several years now, and I've 
Learned a lot. Justin Klein and Steve Peasley understand what investors need and want. I would look at it from a tax perspective. If there's no tax implications, move on, find better ways to use that money. I'm going with the odds. I think a half position now would at least get you in it and get you watching it so you won't lose track of it. Don't forget to call Investor. 888-99-CHART. Each day, Invest Talk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Now, my focus point today is regarding the headline, looking at history of mutual fund innovations. And I thought this was a very interesting article. And it goes back in history of mutual funds to start with. And that, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, I, I didn't know this, but it, they debuted in the Netherlands in the 18th century. And they came here to the US in the 19th century. And they go over the, the successes within the space. Uh, and the first would be simply open-end mutual funds. And for everyone out there, that's probably the mutual fund that's in your 401k, okay? And and it's different between a closed-end fund because closed-end funds are, okay, here are the assets that are in the fund. And then you, if you want to sell the fund, you have to find another buyer, right? Whereas an open-ended fund you can sell at the end of the day, right? That's uh, all most mutual funds are. You you submit an order to sell and end of day close, what we call NAV, the net asset value, that's what you get. Uh, and it's up to the mutual fund company that's running it to liquidate enough assets in order to get the sellers their money, okay? And that's nice because there isn't that discount that most closed-end funds trade at. If you look at closed-end funds, there's a lot of uh, closed-end bond funds that are out there. They typically trade at a discount to their, their NAV. Uh, and that's bad if you want to sell the, your shares. Uh, whereas the open-ended fund, you're guaranteed to get the NAV when you go and sell. So that's the, the first big positive innovation. The next would be index funds, I think. Uh, you know, It's really the lower fees that, that makes them better on average, but you know, uh, an act, a reliably managed active fund uh, can be competitive with index funds. It just has to be the right price uh, and you have to have the right team in order to be successful. But for most people, they don't know how to find those investors and therefore index funds are a good alternative, okay? Number three are exchange traded funds. And these came out in the 90s. And there was some worry about churn and all that, but uh, for the most part, they've been a positive effect uh, for investors, meaning they have greater tax efficiency and you can trade them easier, right? Throughout the day, buy and sell uh, decisions, not just the end of the day, okay? So those are the three kind of positives. Now, what are the big negatives within the space? One, number one, easily is 12B1 fees. Most people don't know what these are, but, and, and a lot of funds, most funds don't carry them anymore, 
But 25 years ago or so, they were pretty much with every mutual fund. They developed in the 80s. And the idea was to pay the marketers to market the fund, sell the fund, so that with size, the, fu the fund fee could come down. So get that. So once there's enough assets, then the fund family can cut that 12B or 12, cut the total fee and then stop paying that 12B1 fee. But in reality, that vicious, that vicious cycle or virtuous cycle rarely occurred. Instead, funds simply charge 12B1 fees without most investors knowing about them. And you just got charged. You have a, you have a fund class that charges more. And whoever sold you that fund gets typically 25 basis points a year uh, kicked back to them. And this is typical when you're dealing with a broker. You're dealing with an Edward Jones. You're dealing with a bank. You're dealing with one of the, the big brokerage firms that uh, is, is pitching you a mutual fund. You're probably paying a 12B1 fee in there, and you don't know it. You can go to Morningstar. You can look it up, actually, and you, you can definitely find it out if you are. Uh, but there's a good chance you are paying that unnecessarily, and you can get the exact same portfolio without the 12B1 fee, lower fees, etc. So never, never, ever, ever pay a 12B1 fee. And make sure you're not. Uh, number two for them would be specialty funds, and I agree with this. This is uh, one where uh, talking about industry-focused funds, geographic regions, etc. And what this typically does is it worsens diversification and it tempts people to overtrade and chase returns. And that's the same with tactical allocation funds, which is their number three here. Uh, and that is better funds that are that short the market, that uh, de employ some sort of unique strategy. Uh, typically, these funds are launched during the height of, uh, after the, the, the market event happened, right? So bear funds showed up uh, after the 2000 crash, the, the financial crisis, and you're going to probably see some more uh, recently uh, after this uh, down move in markets. Um, and the, the same can be said for the thematic funds, right? The, the sexy AI and robotics fund. Uh, whatever fund uh, is chasing a, a sexy story, right? An EV fund. All of those things are usually terrible for investors. They're buying the stocks at a high when everyone's hyped up about them uh, and not investing in them after the crash, after they've repriced to a more reasonable level. Um, and so that's where mutual funds and ETFs can get you in trouble. Now, it's an Invest Talk Wednesday, midweek, and we are watching the market gyrations and here to answer your questions. And if you're a serious investor, you probably have some. So our number never changes and it never closes. It's 888 chart One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. So as long as your questions involve the stock market or general investment topics and definitions, we set no limits. 
You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Justin and I are ready. Are you? Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Yes, good morning, Justin and Steve. Actually, looking at Netflix, they see it's come back quite a bit. Um, and now they're talking about that new subscription rate with the ads. I didn't know if you're thinking this would be maybe a good time to get in. Late, uh, where you guys have a good buy point. Uh, appreciate all you guys do, and I'll be listening on the podcast. Thanks. All right, Netflix had earnings today and spiked up pretty nicely to the 200-day moving average, and that's going to be definitely some solid resistance here. So I would certainly pass. I would slow down. Uh, I would. I would not be buying it here. Our purchase price is $100 per share. Uh, you know, historically, this has not been a name that has done well from a profitability perspective. Uh, it's their cash flow uh, metrics have always been negative. Return assets have been uh, very, very low. Uh, and so, and you're starting to get a lot of streaming competitors from Time Warner Discover merger, as well as Apple and uh, Amazon. And I just don't see them having a great competitive advantage there. Uh, in the space, premium subscriber space, that'd probably be HBO have the mo- has the most consistent quality content creation. Uh, Netflix has spent a lot of money uh, for a handful of hits, but you know their their overall uh, hit rate has been relatively low. And you have Stranger Things and you know a few others that have done well, but overall it's been meager compared to the billions and billions of dollars they've spent on on content. And so. I think this rally is one to to sell uh, at a hundred. Then it starts getting interesting. So I'd pass on it until then. Thanks for the call. Now let's talk a bit about the average investor, the retail investor, and there's some earnings from Charles Schwab, and they track average daily number of retail trades, and it fell to 5.5 million in the third quarter the lowest level since acquiring TD in late 2020. And Morgan Stanley, they also had earnings, and they reported that retail traders placed an average of 805,000 trades a day in the third quarter, down 16% from a year earlier. Then you go to Robinhood. Uh, they are they had the weakest month for average daily volume for stocks and options trading in, uh, in, in the company's history. Now, this only goes back to uh, early last year. Uh, and they saw a slight rebound in August, but the market saw a slight rebound in August. So, you know, that's to be expected. Uh, and they're also laying off workers. Uh, now, they don't report third quarter earnings until next month, but they're already cutting about 23% of full-time staff, and they're having going to have a second round of layoffs later this year. And this all is showing you that the average retail trader is sticking their, le- their their tail between their legs and they're going home. And frankly, I think that's a good thing for markets because you want stickier capital. Retail traders are not sticky capital. Chasing means meme stocks and 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 the latest and greatest uh, theme is typically not good for markets. You're seeing that in the growth side, the ARC funds. Um, you know, ARC is down. from its high, and most of those names continue to just grind lower, and many of them will go bankrupt or get bought out for 
you know, pennies on what they were trading trading for a year ago. Uh, and but I would say that while the retail trade is weakening, along with the overall market, it's not gone. Why? Because there's still money flowing into Ark, and when that goes away, that's when those sexy industries, sexy sectors, will probably get a bit more life to them. Uh, until then, you're you're just going to see a grind lower uh, and lower and lower interest uh, from retail traders. So I thought that was some interesting uh, data coming through from Morgan Stanley and Schwab. <clears throat> now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for the courtesy by getting to their question quickly. Jamie North Dakota says, my wife works in sleep medicine and loves the company Inspire Medical Systems. Their technology is great. How are they as a company? So this is INSP. INSP. And they never made money. Now, revenue growth is strong, 73% last quarter. Uh, but they're going to lose more money this year than they did last year. Lost $1.54 last year. Going to lose $2.58 this year. So... When you say, how are they doing as a business? Not well. And the stock is off. No, not as much as you would think. Down 40% from its high, which is actually decent compared to a lot of the money losing names that are out there. Um, but if you look at, let me look at the cash flow situation here. Yeah, negative free cash flow, but it's not terrible. 22 million trailing 12 months. Yeah, that's improving. 2021, they were at 50, negative 55 million. Now they're at 22. So, you know, from a cash flow perspective, they're getting they're getting better. They don't have any debt, pretty much. So I like that. Uh, I just still don't love the business that's negative free cash flow. Uh, but I will say that the stock's holding up. So it's not something I would buy right now. Technicals still are poor. Um, but if that can break to a positive uh, level on free cash flow and the chart can start improving, then it makes makes me uh, look at it as investable, but not yet. Now, on the next Invest Stock, the story behind this question is continuing volatility signal an impending recession. That story tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein. I'm ready to take your questions live at 888-99-CHART. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It is official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers. Whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life 
that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. The markets react to uncertainty. Are you prepared? Is your portfolio balanced? Is it optimized? Your financial future depends on the answers to those questions. Justin Klein is here now and ready to talk with you. Call Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, I have a question for Steve or Justin concerning real estate. I'm thinking about putting investment property on the market, but I was told to possibly get more people interested is to offer carrying back a loan. So I uh, just wanted to see what your thoughts are on that, what the pros and cons are in doing that, because the interest rate is so high that I guess potential buyers would be having a negative cash flow on the property, and I would rather not carry a loan back, but just wanted to see what your thoughts are in this environment. So, or also just wait until interest rates go back down. I'll be listening to the answer on your show. Thank you. Well, you could do that. And that is a, in a more normal market, that was pretty common. You haven't seen that in a while because the cost of borrow has been so low. It's so been so easy to get a loan that sellers don't need to do a, a carry back. Uh, basically what happens is you're now the lender, uh, meaning, hey, they're contractually, the, the buyer is contractually obligated to pay you over a certain length of time. Uh, and that can vary. And sometimes that is a smart thing to do. Sometimes it's not very smart because the person buying your home is not a great credit. Uh, so it just completely depends on the deal who it is, what are the terms of the deal, what are the interest rates you're getting, uh, et cetera. Uh, now, as long as it's backed by the home, right, that you can take the ownership of the home back, I think that's the number one parameter you should make sure you have. Uh, but you want to also make sure that uh, there's a good chance that this person will be able to fulfill the requirements uh, with that with that carry back. Um, so, I wouldn't be against it, but make sure that the details are all in your favor 
and you're at least getting a reasonable interest rate to take that credit risk. Um, so definitely something to consider, uh, but the devil is always in the details. All right. Thanks for the call. Now I want to touch on the CapEx boom that we are headed towards. And I think we've already started it. Now, this really goes back to how the, the economy is likely to move forward. Now we're used to free market economics and certainly there's still going to be that to some degree. But with inflation being more structural, uh, we are moving into a system in large part where the allocation of resources won't be the same as we've experienced over the past 30, 40 years when it comes to our economy. It will likely be more government driven. And total and the reason is because total private and public sector debt here in the US is 290% of GDP. It's 371% in France and over 250% in many Western economies, especially Japan. Now, back in 08, we were in a deflationary debt liquidation. And what did the powers that be do? They flooded the system with liquidity. They did bailouts to try to stem the tide of deflation. And they found tools to direct money creation. And so... If you think that the central banks will be the source of money creation going forward, you're wrong. What's likely to be is governments telling banks to lend here and lend there. So they're going to take over the levers of the economy. And there's always going to be some sort of emergency situation that needs to be addressed, whether that is COVID, whether that is Ukraine, whether that is the energy crisis, whether that is climate change, whatever it is, they're going to find an excuse for it. And you're already seeing this in the European Union. Now, since February 2020, out of all the new loans in Germany, 40% are guaranteed by the government. That's money creation. Most people don't realize that they think, oh, the Fed is printing money. They're creating money out of thin air. You know who creates far more money out of thin air? Other banks. That's what banks do when they're lending. That's a fractional reserve system. They take reserves. They turn $1 into 10 out in the economy by lending it out. Okay. Now in France, 70% of all new loans have been guaranteed by the government. And in Italy, over 100% have been backed by the government. So they're moving old credit, they're refinancing old credit, it's not backed by the government, to government-backed schemes. And this is likely the way forward for a lot of these indebted nations around the world. And it's great for politicians because it's just a, a government guarantee. That's it. It's free money for them. They don't have to issue more debt. It's not government debt. This is debt, right? Think of Fannie and Freddie, but expanding Fannie and Freddie across multiple parts of the 
economy. What did that do? That made it easier to buy homes. It made it uh, easier for credit expansion within a partic that particular sector. Well, they can do that again and direct capital towards different sectors that they want to solve problems, right? Fannie and Freddie were created to solve the problem of housing affordability. They don't need to raise taxes. They just issue guarantees. And so what they're likely to do is engineer higher nominal GDP, create financial repression where inflation is going to run about 3 to 6%. Nominal GDP is going to run 8 to 9%. And so this mechanism of control of interest rates is going to, that, that we're used to, is going to step aside because we can't raise rates very far. And it's going to move towards a more politicized mechanism of credit creation. Now, what does this mean? It means more regionalized supply chains. Right? More things being made here in the US or Mexico or our friends in Europe, the UK, etc. And we have we're already starting to see a CapEx boom. The last time we saw one was in 1984. Because most of the CapEx has been directed towards outshoring manuf uh, manufacturing. And this is typically actually a good thing. Most people are going to like this. Most people. Savers don't like it. But debtors and young people are going to like it. Wages will rise. And it moves money from the wealthy to and the saver, to, uh, from the savers to the debtors. And from old people to young people. And so this is going to take a while, but this is the new economy you have to get used to. And there are going to be certain sectors that benefit from this CapEx boom. You know what isn't CapEx? Software. Not CapEx. Okay. So this is why we say hard assets, real assets, real businesses. Those are going to thrive in, this, in that economy. And we're just beginning of this long cycle, so be prepared. Now let's fit in another Invest Talk iTunes review question. Jeffrey from Alabama says, I would like to get your opinion and analysis and a good entry point for a 2% position for Suncor, SU. The company would be added to my dividend growth and income portfolio for five plus year time horizon. This is a Canadian company engaged in oil and gas exploration, refining, marketing, of oil, sands, and natural gas in Canada. And I like Suncor. Uh, I'm going to give Suncor a thumbs up. Now, is it my favorite Canadian producer? No, it's probably third or fourth on the list. Uh, but there's there's a lot of good ones. So uh, Suncor is good. Um, I would continue to search. Once again, I can't tell you which ones. Um, but I, I do like a few others better. Some smaller, some bigger. Uh, but Suncor is very good. Uh, so you just went with that, I think you do fine. Obviously, love the, the oil names. Uh, and in a higher oil price environment, they're going to do pretty well. Now, the seasons are changing. Colder weather is coming from most of the country. I know here, I woke up today in Laguna Beach and pretty warm. Um, so we're in a time where the weather is volatile. It was cold last week, warm this week, and the markets are volatile. So 
it's worth taking a minute to make you aware of some of the benefits of working with myself or Steve Peasley at our company, KPP Financial, where we practice parallel investing and we invest right alongside our clients. And I encourage you to take advantage of our free portfolio view assessment via telephone or go to meeting. No obligation, just sit down, um, usually video conference, and talk about your portfolio, give you uh, an understanding of what type of risk you're taking, what sectors you might be overweight or underweight. Are you prepared for that environment I talked about, that CapEx boom that we're likely to see over the next decade or two? So you can send us a message through investtalk.com or call our office at 800-557-5461. We'd love to help you in any way. And the sooner we connect, the sooner we can help get your portfolio optimized. Let's go to James, New York, looking at Playboy. Yes. So I uh, had made this purchase and lost about 80% of my initial investment about a year ago. I was wondering in the interest of tax loss harvesting if I should just cut my losses and move on. I'd rather not, but one is the bottom. Yeah, you're, you're in our bucket. This is one we got wrong um, so far. Uh, the top line's been good, but the management's been horrible at keeping uh, costs reined in. Um, and so we're getting the one more quarter. We have uh, earnings early or early to mid-November. Uh, and I think it's their first chance to do a mea culpa, saying, hey, we, we messed up. We, 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 you know, we spent way too much money, um, and we're getting our costs under control. If they can't do that, then I think they've lost all, all, all hope of, actually being good stewards of, of this brand that clearly is worth many multiples times the current value. Um, it's just a matter of getting the management teams in there that can not just grow the top line, but do it uh, effectively, uh, or sorry, efficiently. Um, they're just not doing that now. So I think a lot of people are going to do tax loss harvesting at the end of the year. Um, but uh, I, you know, we're, we're waiting one more quarter to see what those results are. Thanks for the call. Now let's fit in another caller question here at 888 chart Hello, this is Luke from New York. I'm calling about Smith & Wesson, ticker symbol SWBI. Wanted to get your opinion on this stock. What's your valuation of this stock? Thank you. I will be listening for your answer on the podcast. All right, Smith & Wesson brands. The technicals are terrible, so that's number one. Uh, number two is... Uh, earnings are down 56% this year, uh, expected to be, and uh, earnings expectations for next year are coming down. So both this year and next year, you're, you're going to have a tough time. Uh, now, where is support? Uh, eight bucks. Now it's at 10. So uh, I think it's definitely cheap at, at eight bucks, and I, I might pick it up. Uh, now there's obviously new gun leg legislation that came down the pipe recently. It's been it's pretty meager, uh, putting some restrictions on people uh, that try to get guns that are under 21 um, you know it's, it doesn't do a whole lot for gun control uh, so I don't think it's gonna really hurt their business too dramatically uh, but this is definitely at the bottom of the cycle and I would probably pick it up at eight but it looks like it's going there so I'd be a little patient now let's tackle one more iTunes call Poll 7871 says, I'm interested in ESLT. Your thoughts on this? All right. ESLT. This is Elbit Systems. This is Israeli manufacturer of surveillance, land vehicles, airborne, and electro-optical systems. And this is in the defense industry. And obviously with the war in Ukraine, money going towards that, uh, and just 
Western governments around the world bulking up their defense systems. You are, are, are seeing this one act relatively well, uh, although it is off its high, about 15%. Its relative strength is at 91. So it's outperforming the vast majority of stocks out there right now. Uh, now, I've said for a while that I'm not a huge fan of the large defense contractors. I think it's going to be more cybersecurity spending. Well, I've been wrong so far. Let's just say that. Um, but Elbit Systems is right in the heart of defense, homeland security, commercial flight capabilities. Um, so well diversified. And I will say it's not exactly cheap, trading at 28 times earnings. Earnings are supposed to be down 18% this year, but back up 14% next year. Um, you know, I'm okay with it. I don't love it because it's not cheap. You're looking at enterprise value to EBITDA. 10 and a half times, not horrible. Historically, let's see, where does it trade? Yeah, historically, this is about average. So I'm going to give this, you know, a modest thumbs up. Not my favorite, but I like it better than the Lockheed Martins of the world. Let's just say that. Now, this is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 800 557 5461. You are listening to Invest Talk. Every Friday on the program and the podcast, Steve Peasley shares highlights from the newest edition of the KPP Premium Newsletter. Listen Fridays to Invest Talk. And now, Steve and Justin welcome your calls and questions. 888 99Chart. We're going to go talk to Mike in Michigan looking at Charter Communications. Uh, hi, Justin. I appreciate you taking my call, and uh, I appreciate your show. I've been listening for about six months now. So Thank you. Um, yeah, I I, uh, I do own Charter Communications already. I have about a 2% position in it, but I have been buying it on the way down, and uh, it seems pretty reasonably priced right now, But and it seems like the multiples are okay. It's just the one thing that worries me is the amount of debt. And I'm just wondering what you were thinking about it, whether I should hold or, or sell or buy more. Well, that's exactly what the market is worried about as well. They have a lot of debt on their balance sheet, about a hundred billion dollars in debt. And their current free cash flow is at about 8 billion trailing 12 months. But their, their times interest earned is about 2.8. So that's pretty low. Um, so I would be a bit worried about that, that debt level, um, you know, just because their, their business is definitely not growing, right? Uh, at least it's growing modestly. Yeah. Um, and their debt level is, is pretty large. So uh, it's not a name that I'd probably want to hold longer term. Now, do I think they go bankrupt? No, but I think they're going to have they're going to they're going to uh, probably put a lot of their earnings towards paying back their debt uh, and not towards paying on a dividend or buying back stock or do the things that are more shareholder friendly. Right. They're going to need to do things that are right. bondholder friendly, and the the market doesn't yeah. like that. Yeah, they don't have any dividends, but they haven't buying back shares. Um... I originally bought them because I thought they were going to be building out like rural infrastructure and everything. So maybe that's not uh, a good reason. 
Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, they're definitely going to have to cut some, um, some of those share buybacks because uh, the, the bond market is not loving what they're doing. Uh, let me look, let me just look. I have actually have my bond search uh, up here. Yeah, so they're triple B minus. And let's see, their yields are worst on their 2035s, about seven and a half. So, you know, the bond market's not too worried about it, to be honest with you. If you're looking at the pricing of the bonds, they're in the uh, they're in the 90s for uh, reasonable uh, yielding bonds. So I don't think they're going to go bankrupt or anything, but the, the stock market doesn't love it. So uh, and, and you want to be out of companies that have a, a, a large debt load that are, are addicted to really cheap debt. Uh, and I think they're going to have to stop the debt issuance they're, and they're going to have to stop the share buybacks. I think that's what the market's pricing in here is just a, a new era of more bondholder friendly uh, initiatives. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch on the tax rates and the 37% top marginal tax rate will apply to uh, individual incomes above 578,000 uh, and 693,000 for married couples. That's next year uh, and that's up 7% from this year. Now, the standard deduction will climb from 27,000 or 227,700 for married couples and 13,850 for individuals, both of those up 7% from last year. Uh, and this is all because of inflation adjustments. And this is going to be a positive, I think, for uh, a lot of people because the changes will take effect in January and they'll show up as lower tax withholdings in your paycheck. So all things being equal, even if you don't make any more money, that deduction, standard deduction is going to be higher. Uh, and starting in January, you're going to have a higher take home pay. The other things that are going to go up, the life, lifetime estate gift, <clears throat> gift tax will go from 12,060,000 to 12,920,000. The, Annual amount you can gift to any individual will be go from 16,000 to 17,000 and your various tax brackets are all going to go up 7%. So the 10% tax bracket goes to 11,000, the 12% tax bracket goes to 44,725, the 22% tax bracket goes to 95,375, the 24% tax bracket goes up to 182,100 and the 32% tax bracket, $231,250. And finally, the 35% tax bracket goes up to the top threshold, which, like I said, is, uh, what, 578000 for individuals. That's a, that's a positive going to close the show. And I thank you all for tuning in. And a reminder that you can find our podcast anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review on iTunes, and it's official. Our count has now exceeded 46.3 million. Independent thinking, shared success. This is the best talk. Good night. Okay, right near the end. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. 
Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.